Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back. It is the first off-season episode of the 2021 off-season. We don't even know when the 2021 season is going to begin, but we have made it through the bubble. Man, it was a it was a long road, but here we are in the off-season draft coming up on November 18th. We are about the middle of October right now. We're going to have a free agency period, all that fun stuff. But today, I want to reflect a little bit on the bubble, on the Lakers wrapping up the championship last week, and get into, man, something I've wanted to do for a long time, a new way to imagine first options, basically the end of the idea of the first option. Because I think we can do better. I think we can move beyond the framework of he's a first option, he's a second option, and so on and so forth. So we'll get to that today a little bit later in the show. Uh, I'll try to walk through sort of the way I've been thinking about this differently for the last few seasons and, and a new way to think about this. You know, back in the day, I had some anecdotes, some stories from my week that I could tell to start a podcast like this. And now this is the downside of the pandemic podcast, I feel like. I just, I don't really accumulate any fun stories during the week. Um, Daryl Morey, he is out in Houston. I guess there's a there's kind of an anecdote I can go back in time. Uh, I ran into Daryl. I'd never met him. I ran into him last year in Summer League. Remember we used to do... In the before times, we used to have a, a summer league where we'd all get together in Las Vegas and you'd see all kinds of people in the industry. And I was walking out of the gym one day and he was walking by. And my first impression, I don't know how many people know this, he's tall. He's a little taller than me. I don't know if he had some wonderful shoes going that day or something. And I was in, uh, I had no lift, but I mean, he got to be around 6'3", right? Anybody who knows... Daryl's height. Um, let me know what his his official listing is. Of course, I'm gonna need an I'm gonna need a without shoes listing now that we are back to doing things that way. But anyway, uh, I don't. There, there's no great anecdote there either. It's not like he stopped and hung around and volunteered to do a bunch of math tricks for me. That's a that's a reference to podcast number 32 for longtime listeners. Um, Daryl, the thing I wanted to briefly discuss on with Maury leaving Houston after, what, about 13, 13 seasons? Yeah, 2007 is when that began. Uh, they had one of the winningest periods, you know, the, one, of the, one of the most successful periods among any team in the league in that span, uh, not just almost knocking off the Warriors in the Western Conference Finals, making other Western Conference Finals, making the playoffs repeatedly, uh, basically overachieving 
at the end of the decade when Tracy McGrady and Dwight Howard were injured. But he, of course, is kind of the face. Uh, you'll hear me reference Maury Ball a lot. He is the face of this so-called analytics movement. And my friend at The Athletic, who we had on the other day, Seth Partnow, and I have talked about this. Analytics is not the greatest term. Uh, it has a lot of baggage attached to it, but it's also sort of become an oversimplification of what people are trying to do when they incorporate data. Data is just information. Data is just numbers and stats and, and measurements of things, as you've heard me say many, many times. It gets complicated when the measurements get really big. It gets complicated when the measurements aren't perfect. You know, we're not in the physics lab. So if we measure assists, what does that have to do with shot creation? What does that have to do with hitting open men in high leverage situations? It's a, it's a proxy for it. We don't really know perfectly what that says. So there's a lot of things happening where just numerically, we need to understand how to count really big things. And then also we need to understand the context around those things. And that's kind of what this, the spirit of the analytics movement has been um, in, in practice behind closed doors uh, or any anyone really moving the ball down the field in any of these sports where big data is coming to life. I think it's something that's been pushed forward by the presence of the internet, having access to this technology, having access to more data, um, a lot of open source public folks like myself being able to just start from a, a laptop in an apartment or a house somewhere and collect all this data. And then you get to things like, well, maybe we should go for it more on fourth down because a lot of people had been going for it on fourth down in things like Madden. You know, it turns out if you build a simulator for a sport, Madden or NBA Live or whatever it is, and you let thousands and millions of people experiment with different ways to advance forward in that sport, they'll come up with strategies that aren't necessarily in the norm or the mainstream if the norm in the mainstream has just been the same group of homogenous thinkers for decade after decade. By the way, David Aldridge had a very interesting piece in The Athletic today on Daryl Morey on, on The Athletic. In the, I think it's, I'm supposed to say, on The Athletic app. I, I should have learned this last time. Anyway, uh, he discusses some of the successes and the influences that Morey had in his tenure in Houston, along with some of the trade-offs. He gets into some very interesting things on diversity in sort of uh, analytics positions in STEM positions and things like that. Interesting read, but The Athletic had a lot of coverage on this from multiple sources. And if you want to check them out, they are a sponsor of this podcast. Go to theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. And right now for a limited time, you'll get it for a dollar a month uh, for the first six months. So that's $6 for six months theathletic.com slash thinking basketball pod. It's a great way to support this show. When you head on over there, you download the app, customize it, put the writers you want. They have local coverage. They got other sports. Theathletic.com slash thinking basketball pod, a dollar a month for a limited time. So all of that is to say that I think what happened in Houston, uh, push the ball down the road 
more quickly. But I mean, these things have been trending in this direction for a long time. And you're probably not going to get there without guys like Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and really successful teams or, you know, James Harden and Mike D'Antoni and, and actual players and coaches tactically thinking about ways to be smarter. Because at the end of the game, at the end of the day, basketball is still just a game where you're trying to take advantage of the rules. And I think for fans out there who are lamenting this, who are bummed out about all of the three-point shots that have come into the game, uh, the lack of a mid-range, the fact that the game is kind of spaced and stretched out more than it ever was. So you don't really have a lot of the same paint activity or mid-range jumpers that you used to have. I think that to me is just taking advantage of the rules that have always been there. It's taken, I have a video coming out on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel uh, in this off-season break talking about the history of shooting development and and sort of three-point rates, and it's taken an incredibly long time to take advantage of, you know, three being way, way more effective than two. Every game is going to have some structure that you can take advantage of like this. So in basketball, way back at the beginning of the sport, they weren't sure what to do with the value of a field goal and the value of a free throw. I think at one point it was it started one point for a field goal, one point for a free throw. Uh, this is like over 100 years ago I'm talking about James Naismith, other people trying to figure out the rules. I think they went to three points for a shot and one point for a field goal at one point. Uh, at, su- at some point in time, a free throw was supposed to be a single shot from the top of the key worth two points, an all-or-nothing proposition, kind of some of the same things you've seen floated around now for the G League. We may have a four-point shot come into the game one day, right? The three-point line could be moved back. It was moved in. All of these things are going to change the optimal way to attack. And so whether it's Houston pushing it more in the forefront or whatever, these changes are, these are inefficiencies that are finally being taken advantage of. And it's really up to the rules of the game to dictate a different way to go about it. So if you're listening and, and you've got a bunch of friends, you know, who, you know, think the game has been ruined and all the three point shots and analytics have ruined it. I mean, I would imagine that what they mean when someone like that says, hey, the game's been ruined for me, is it's been changed in a way that I don't like anymore, that doesn't resonate with the the thing I love growing up or in the past or whatever. And I think that's the, my point here is it's totally natural and it's organic and I think it happens in a lot of sports, but it's more to me driven by the rules that are there to be taken advantage of than some bizarre kind of outlying strategy that came out of left field that people are going along with for weird reasons that, okay, maybe when we do some math, yes, it turns out that might, that might be slightly better, but it's not fun anymore. Uh, of course, I, I find it very fun still. I think this is one of the most exciting eras in league history. And you can just take the Lakers run through the bubble. They kind of played four distinctly different teams stylistically and their own versatility and flexibility, as 
I've talked about a lot lately was something that was key to them having success. So Portland, um, the way they play, Lillard's ability to use high pick and roll, uh, you know, they're kind of looking for short roll stuff from their big men at times in those situations. And then going to Houston and the microball experiment that the Rockets are playing, both on offense and defense and the things that come with that. Then to Denver, where you've got the the Jokic-Murray two-man game and all the sort of stuff that is built around that with the Nuggets. And then you get to the finals and you play Miami. And to me, Miami's kind of like a Golden State light on offense, or maybe even just both ways, trying to be very versatile, switchable, movement, shooting heavy, very creative stuff uh, from Eric Spolstra. Obviously, Spo, one of, if not the best, coaches going in the game right now. So, you know, that's just the Lakers' four playoff opponents to get to a title. And that's a lot of diversity right there and a lot of different exciting tactical and strategic stuff from matchup to matchup that we've talked about a lot. Um, Questions I've seen about the Lakers that we'll get to two specific questions from Twitter uh, before we unpack my my takedown of the first option after many years of fandom finally going to attack this thing um (laughs) the Lakers one of the questions I've seen is are were they a dominant champion you know how good were they well there's a lot of stuff in the bubble that we don't know of course but they went 16 and 5 in the postseason and I think they played well all year they were a championship level basketball team basically all year. Did they look dominant? Were they flawless? Were they a high-end, like, all-time team? Uh, As I've said before, I think none of those things look like they're the case, but they also played very well in the playoffs. And I do think their closest... The hardest series may have been Denver. It was a five-game series, but the Nuggets had those back-to-back seven-game series and then just look flat in game one. And the other six games of the series were very competitive. I mean, remember that Davis won that game with a buzzer beater in, I think that was game four, right? It was two to one. Um, That made it three to one. I'm probably getting my games confused. I am. I am getting my games confused. That was the second game of the series that made it two nothing. Then the Nuggets came back uh, and made it two one and so on and so forth. So, you know, that series to me, is going to be one of those five-game series historically that was way more competitive than that five games suggests. And then you look at the Miami series, and Miami, to me, also a better team than Denver. I've talked about uh, how I do think the Heat's body of work in the bubble suggests that they're far better than they were in the regular season. They're already a solid team in the regular season, but I think they leveled up legitimately. And so they didn't, let's just put it this way. It's a lot easier if you're the Lakers and you don't have to play Golden State, right? If you don't have a, a, a team like that in your way, things are definitely a lot easier on your path to a title. Now, here's a Twitter question from Mark Wilson. He says, in the book, Thinking Basketball, you say seven games isn't enough to prove the best team wins in the playoffs. So how many games are needed? So I see this enough that I wanted to address it. It's not that seven games aren't always enough 
It's that if you have two teams that are fairly close together, seven games isn't going to be enough. And sometimes it really won't be close to enough. If you've got two teams that are legitimately 50-50 or 55-45 or they're very close, then it's going to take a long time for those teams to play each other to kind of sort out, okay, this team really is going to win about 55% of the games they play against this other team. And so just like many things with sample size, it depends on the context. It depends on how consistent a measurement is. So when you have two teams that are really close, it's like flipping a coin. It goes back and forth. It takes a long time. I think what more people are interested in is if I watch a series, how confident can I be that the best team wins? Occasionally, at least in theory, it, it in theory, it should happen every once in a while. A weaker team could sweep a better team, right? And I go into this in detail in the book, so I won't belabor it here. But I think the spirit of the question and what I wanted to get at is that if you've got a lot of indicators that a team is better outside of something like three-point shooting luck, right? Free throw shooting luck, something like that. They match up and they have no answer for offensive rebounding, size in the paint, et cetera, et cetera. And you see more consistency in that from game to game. In a playoff series, teams are naturally going to make adjustments. And then it's a question of how effective are those adjustments? Do you have a counter to the counter? And I think one of the things that made the Lakers so good relative to the teams they had to play in this season's playoffs is whatever counter they went to, uh, you kind of start to run out of stuff on the other side of the court to take away LeBron James, to take away Anthony Davis, or to nullify some of their effectiveness in the case of Davis on defense. There's only so much you can do to kind of avoid his defensive presence in the paint or in the Miami series, switching on to Jimmy Butler. Another one I've seen a lot in that vein is how do I think last year's Raptors team would fare against this Lakers team? And I'm not going to break down the whole series here. It's got some interesting wrinkles to it, I think. But those two teams I see as relatively in the same ballpark in terms of like title contending teams. I think obviously the Raptors had a break with the injuries to Golden State last year in the sense that they didn't have to face the the super team of Golden State, but that Toronto team was right around championship level. I thought all season, their roster construction, their talent, uh, you know, if you look at them, they have to play Milwaukee, they play Philadelphia. Those are extremely close series. Probably tougher goes for them than what they ended up facing at the end of the playoffs in Golden State. And if you look at those series, I think one of the more fascinating thought experiments is how do we feel about things and what is the state of the NBA if the Raptors, uh, if Kawhi's shot doesn't bounce in and the Raptors lose that game in overtime to Philadelphia? Like, does Jimmy Butler stay in Philadelphia? What's going on with Joel Embiid? Does Kawhi still just go to the Clippers under the exact same circumstances. It's it's a really fun kind of what if based on a, a very simple thought experiment in a way. It's it's just 
what happens if that shot doesn't go in? Part of me wants to give a slight edge to the Raptors because I think they probably, you know, if the Lakers go small or something like that, then Toronto can put Abaka at the five and maybe hand, they've got Siakam, they've got Kawhi, uh, big, bigger forwards to potentially throw at LeBron. A great, great defensive team in Toronto last season, of course. So my my hunch is to lean in that direction, but then, of course, I think you could go the other way and say that when the Raptors see LeBron, all bets are off with his history there. And plus, it's LeBron James in a playoff series against a relatively comparable team. So pretty close series to me. I'm not sure which way I would lean if they matched up. Maybe a little bit toward the Lakers. I'm not sure. By the way, speaking of LeBron, I talked to Mike Prada last week on his podcast, which I really enjoyable, fascinating conversation we got into. If you haven't heard that, it's the Limited Upside Podcast. Limited Upside Podcast, episode number 14, where we start talking about legacies and kind of uh, player rankings and what they all mean. And he had originally asked about the Lakers and, and kind of putting these legacies into perspective. Well, with LeBron James going on right now, they just started over on the Real GM player comparison message board, board I used to frequent many, many years ago. They are now doing their top 100 player list of all time. And somewhat surprisingly to me, LeBron James has been voted in at number one. Now, they do this list. It's a group of analysts, historians, fans, all kinds of knowledgeable, deep knowledgeable conversation going on over there. And they've done this list, I I think, every like three years for over 15 years. This has got to be the sixth or seventh version. And with the exception of Wilt Chamberlain finishing first one time many, many years ago, Michael Jordan has held that top spot. So it's a pretty big deal that on the heels of his 17th season, his fourth championship, all this kind of stuff, LeBron has finally been voted in ahead of Jordan after an upward trajectory on all of these lists going back to his his early days in the league. And they do this again in the voted, the voting body changes. Uh, I participated in it many, many years ago. So it's not static. He might come back next time and Jordan might be number one again or some other player. But just very, very interesting to see that effect starting to take place where more people, and for them, it's going to be typically less about things like rings, but more about hey, this guy's in his 17th season, he's almost 36 years old, and he's still arguably the best player in the league. That's absolutely incredible. He's been doing it forever. He looks like he's headed toward the all-time scoring title, maybe 40,000 points in his career in the NBA, maybe 40,000 points, 10 assists, 10 rebounds, on and on and on and on. Okay, let's talk about first options. Hopefully for the last time, hopefully I can present something here to you that's convincing that we can move beyond this terminology. And so I'm going to present a framework in a second. But first, 
my problem with the first option, maybe it's a little too scoring centric the way people use it. So a guy like Steve Nash or Magic Johnson or even John Stockton, whatever, they're going to get sort of pushed down in conversations where a guy doesn't score 25 or 30 points a game. But that's a smaller thing. I think for me, the bigger thing has been the defensive component. And so in thinking about this over the years, I take a guy like Rudy Gobert as an example. I mean, people don't even talk about Rudy Gobert as a good second option or a third option. And rightfully so. Most of his value is on the defensive end. So what is the equivalent in our conversations about basketball for a guy like Rudy Gobert on defense? Some people might say a defensive anchor, but then how do you, is there like a second option for a defensive anchor? Is what if you're not an anchor? What if you're a wing player and you're a great defender, but you're not quite what we would consider an anchor? Uh, you could even have defensive player of the year impact or something like that. How, how do we sort of talk about this in these terms where first option kind of feels like a, a giant gorilla in the room taking up a bunch of space? And here's where I'm at. Here's the new framework that I've been using and kind of playing with that I think moves beyond the first option, hopefully forever. Players get two numbers instead of one number. So instead of being a first option, you can be number one on offense and number two on defense. You can be number three on offense and number one on defense and so on and so forth. And when I say number one on offense here, it's not the traditional first option per se. It's if I'm building a high-level team, where are you in the offensive hierarchy? So are you good enough to be my best player on a high-level offense that can compete for a championship? If you are a huge scorer and you're currently the first option on a lesser offensive team, then you may not be an offensive number one in this paradigm, right? You may actually be an offensive number two or an offensive number three. So when we look at, uh, let's just take like DeMarcus Cousins from a couple years ago, clearly the number one option on his team at the time, but is he an offensive number one in this framework, I'd say no. You don't. You're not going to build a championship level offense with him as your best offensive player. Is he an offensive number two? Maybe we can. Th those become trickier conversations. But those are exactly the conversations I think we should be having when we start with these very quick and dirty kind of generic frameworks like a first option, because again, first option biases towards specific things. And the other thing is defense. So when I say, are you a number one on offense, meaning can you be the best offensive player realistically on a, on a high level championship team? The same goes for defense. If I'm constructing a high level defense, where do I want you in that hierarchy? It doesn't matter what position you play. It doesn't matter how you create your defensive value, but if I'm looking at a high-level defensive team, what's realistic for your spot on the club? 
are you number one? Are you clearly the best defense and things are built around you? I would say Rudy Gobert is a defensive number one. Is he an offensive number one? Certainly not. But I don't know if he's like an offensive number four, number five. And the way I've been using this framework, by the way, is one through five. So there's two components. I don't have a name for this. Maybe someone out there can uh, you know, be far more creative than I can ever be and think about how to name this or, or push this ball down the road. But you've got an offensive component where let's take Rudy Gobert. He might be, what, an offensive number four, let's say. I think you can probably see a realistic uh, high-level offensive team where there maybe is a weaker offensive player than him. Ben Wallace would be an offensive five. You absolutely, whenever he's on the court for any realistic roster construction, you want Ben Wallace to be the worst offensive player on the court. So he's an offensive number five. Of course, he's a defensive number one because you can build a great defense around him and he's going to be your best defensive player 99% of the time. So I've been thinking about this like fantasy football nomenclature, like Ben Wallace is an 05, an offensive five, and a defensive one. In my uh, chatting, I've just been typing, you know, 05 D1. But it's the same kind of thing. It's like he is a number five on offense, a number one on defense. Then you look at someone like James Harden, let's say. James Harden, to me, is clearly a one on offense. And then on defense, I think he's like a four or five. You don't want a team where James Harden is the third best defensive player on the court. You don't want two other guys on the court to be weaker defenders than James Harden because that suggests that you're not going to have a competitive defense. So now all of a sudden, you can very quickly and clearly dive in at conversation points, but also balance offense and defense immediately when you think about a guy like, okay, I want to compare Harden to Gobert. Well, Gobert, let's say he's a he's an offensive number four, but he's a defensive one. Well, Harden might be the uh, an offensive one and a defensive five. Which is better? Well, we can go in and talk about how really, really high-end offensive players create value that seems to be, uh, you know, almost non-linear. It gets better and better as they continue to, to scale up or have huge impact. So we can have that conversation, but it, it's a it's a framework that allows us to immediately take a guy like Draymond Green when he comes down the road and go like, oh, he's a clear defensive number one, which is huge. And he's not an offensive five like Ben Wallace, which implies that there's some offensive value to be had what is it? I think in the case of the 73 win Golden State team, you know, you could argue he was an offensive four. Uh, you could argue he was an offensive three, maybe even with his passing and shooting and spacing that year. And then you start to think about this stuff like, wait a second, uh, a defensive number one who can anchor a championship defense and his offense might be like the third best offensive player on a championship level offense. In his case, it has nothing to do with scoring, right? He's a great example now that I'm talking this through because he wouldn't be a guy you'd ever describe as a first option, even on a poor team. 
right? He wouldn't be a second option on the poor team. You wouldn't you wouldn't have a 15-win team add Draymond Green and go, well, it's great, we got a second option. We'll be a little bit more competitive this year. This, to me, has a lot more value uh, just as a framework and a conversation piece, and it hopefully gets rid of the first option terminology or nom- you know that nomenclature, which I think can create issues. It's certainly inspired by the idea that if you are, let's say, an offensive number two, let's look at Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis, to me, is the classic example of an offensive number two and a defensive number one. And those players are monsters. They are absolute certifiable beasts. Some of the greatest players in the history of the game, in my assessment, are offensive twos and defensive ones. But because of the first option terminology, guys like Davis have been criticized for not being great, great, great offensive players who you can build your offense around at a championship level. Guys like Kevin Garnett have had the same criticism. Tim Duncan, who I also think is a great example of a defensive one and an offensive two, has sort of skirted that criticism, I think, because of the 2003 championship where his best offensive trait at that point in time was scoring and low block scoring. They were grinded out games. San Antonio was a defensive team. You do enough to win a title and people think, oh, it can build a great championship offense around Duncan. But those Spurs teams weren't great championship offenses. They were great championship defenses that won with just enough offense. And I think his partner in crime and predecessor in San Antonio, David Robinson, has the exact same situation. I think he's a classic case of a defensive one and an offensive two. And it's the same stuff that happened with him in the 90s where he was put in a position with the Spurs to probably overachieve in the regular season, get into the postseason, uh, have some of his offensive weaknesses magnified. And it's like, look, when he got to play on a more balanced team at the end of his career, when he was clearly a weaker player, look at how successful he can be as a second or third kind of quote-unquote option. And of course, we don't need to say second or third option because it's really about being the second or third offensive piece in the hierarchy. In his case, with his off-ball game and his offensive rebounding, uh, to me, that clearly makes him an ideal number two offensive piece. And then you get an offensive number one to go with him, and you're going to have a really good offense. The other place I really like starting at this high level is with prospects and scouting younger players, guys coming in through the draft, because it forces, at least for me, it forces me to look at them and say, what is the, what is a trajectory in both directions on both offense and defense for them on good teams? And of course, I'm doing that anyway, but just starting with this, like, he looks like he could be an offensive three at his ceiling, an offensive two, paired with a defensive two. Now, that becomes a really good player. You know, Marcus Smart might be an interesting example. Marcus Smart is a guy who I've been higher on for a couple years now than most people I see, um, certainly in 
media and awards and things like that. And it, I think it's because, to me, he's like a defensive two, which is really valuable to be a defensive two. Um, you could, in theory, have kind of a championship-ish level defense with him as a one. So you could say, okay, he's a two, maybe a light one, something like that. But then on offense, he's like, what would we say, a three or a four? Something in that range. And so how many players in the league can provide that kind of value on high-level teams where you are going to be one of, if not the best defenders, and then a positive contributing player on offense as well. And the two-way thing allows you, you know, having that two-way balance, of course, allows you to have fewer weaknesses and fit in more lineups. And the league now is so focused, it seems, on targeting weaknesses. So if you have, you know, if you're a, if you're a 5-1 or a 1-5 or something like that, there may be extremes that you have to worry about in how you project a young player forward. Take a guy like Lonzo Ball. What is Lonzo Ball going to look like at his best here? Is he going to be the second best offensive player on a high-level team? I mean, I imagine people who are still holding Lonzo Ball stock probably are thinking in that range, right? But then what what's happening on the defensive side? Is he going to be the second or third best defensive player? I mean, if he's in that range, you can see how it would be very, very valuable. But if you go, okay, this guy's more of an offensive liability, um, his inability to ever really get comfortable going to the rim and finishing and you know, I think he'll improve, but all the things that he has going on, if that were his ceiling, his free throw shooting were problematic, his outside shooting kind of stayed where it was this year in New Orleans, then you're talking about a guy who might be like an offensive four in this construct and probably not a defensive one or two. Anyway, we could go all day with examples. I will leave it at that. I think of this as maybe the two-way option or two-way options or um, something to do with the two-way hierarchy. I have no idea what to call this system. And it may certainly evolve over time. But right now and for a while, this is how I've been thinking about these things to replace the first option because the idea of a first or second option is just very limiting to me. And it destroys really, really relevant parts of the conversation. It, it leads us to focus. It biases us on things that aren't necessarily that valuable. And so hopefully this can shine a light on the two-way value that players provide and the environment that we want them to provide it in, right? It's just going back to where I started with Boogie Cousins. If you average 28 points a game in Sacramento, that's great. But if we're thinking about constructing playoff level or championship level competitive teams, I think what we're really more interested in is where do you fit in the hierarchy on that team? Let me know what you think. Remember, you can get that $1 a month deal at The Athletic right now, theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. The best way to support this podcast is to directly sign up at patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We've got a monthly Q&A for our highest subscription tier. We have historical stats, 
additional articles, uh, director's cut videos, things like that. Patreon.com slash Thinking Basketball. Great way to support this podcast. Uh, That is it for me. I hope that you have enjoyed this one. And as always, wherever you're listening, that you are having a great day.